Welcome to Pilgrimage. This course is an introduction to Christianity in the Episcopal Church. These presentations introduce a way of looking at the big questions of faith. You're invited to join in, not just watch or listen, but join us in the conversation. You can register for the class at holycommunion.net. While you're here, consider hitting like or subscribe or sharing this video with a friend. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith, you are welcome. Hi, my name is Mike. I am a priest at Holy Communion in University City, Missouri, and we are in pilgrimage. In today's session, I've entitled, Is the Bible the Word of God? Provocative question. I'm going to share some slides as I present as we look at the Bible, sort of an introduction to a progressive Christian or Episcopalian view of the Bible. It's one of our pilgrimage classes. So the Bible, how do we read and hold scripture? Now that first question that I ask, is the Bible the word of God? I actually want to look at the scripture around that. At the very beginning of John's gospel, the first chapter of John's gospel, uh, we hear these words, in the beginning was the word. Word of God is something that's referenced in scripture itself. And in the Greek, it's an important word, logos, the word. So the Bible talks about the word of God. And when the Bible talks about the word of God, it's being specific, at least in this case in John. It's referring to God. It's referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Christ. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So even scripture itself takes a position about what the word of God is. And it's not self-referential necessarily. It's thinking about God's role within history, within creation, within salvation. It's thinking about who Jesus is. The Presbyterians have a way of talking about scripture, sometimes in their liturgies and their worship services, in the Presbyterian church, they'll introduce a reading from scripture this way. They'll say something like, a reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, listen for the word, capital W, among the words, lowercase w. There is this idea that God's presence as word, God's presence as speech, as voice, God's presence even as written word, is a part of what scripture is about. And that part of how we approach scripture is to listen for the word among the words. Now, for folks that grew up in a more evangelical background, that may be a hard thing to hear. There may be some of you listening to this going, well, what are you saying about scripture then? What are you saying about the Bible? Does it have authority? Is it inerrant? Is it, we'll get to some of that. But the Episcopal Church, which large, uh, takes a progressive view, and I don't mean that in terms of a political party, but in the sense of incorporating the best of what we know of textual criticism, of science, of sociology, of anthropology, of history, we don't leave all of that stuff to the side as we approach the Bible. And I would argue, I don't think that means that we have to give up on the idea that God's word can be found in the Bible. But first we have to know a little bit more about what we're talking about. So I wanna take a look at 
the structure of the Bible. Let's start with the structure of the Bible by saying, what does the Bible even mean? What does that word mean? Well, Bible doesn't translate as book, singular. Ta Biblia in Greek is plural, writings, maybe more properly, library, even scriptures. We often talk about the Holy Scriptures. It means writings. We, we need to recognize that the Bible is a collection of 66 or so books written over a thousand or more years. That's a big chunk of various, and we'll look at the different kinds of literature that make up scripture. But it's a collection, it's a library, it's a whole bunch of different writings, different perspectives, written at vastly different times by different cultures. The idea of a bound Bible, the first time we get that is in Alexandria, the uh, Greek-speaking Jewish community in Alexandria in Egypt, near that famous library of Alexandria. You've got a picture of it here on the slide. If you're listening, I will upload the slides to our pilgrimage page so you can take a look at them. Uh, but here's a picture of the Library of Alexandria from Wikimedia Commons. In Alexandria, there's this idea that scripture was brought together for the first time. The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we sometimes call them, was brought together for the first time because there was this great library and they wanted the Jewish scriptures as part of that. Uh, and so you get the first binding together of a Bible. But that's relatively recent in the scope of scripture's history, this idea of a bound together book with all the collection of different writings. Let's look at what makes up uh, the Hebrew scriptures, or, or let's look at the whole Bible first, actually. So as I said, there's a lot of parts. The, the Bible is often divided by Christians into two parts. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, what is also commonly called the Old Testament, though that's a problematic term, uh, for those of us who try to have good relationships with our Jewish colleagues, uh, our Jewish neighbors, uh, calling their Bible the old Bible, that's eh, a little problematic. Uh, no, so normally today we tend to talk about the Hebrew Bible. Um, these are the stories and writings of God and the people Israel from creation up until the Maccabean period, just before Jesus's time. It's a big piece of history. And then for Christians, there's also the New Testament the stories of Jesus and the writings of the early church. Uh, let's take a part, let's break it up even more though. So in the Hebrew Bible, uh, you have a set of different kinds of writing. Uh, you have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I give you the Hebrew and what it means here on the slide. That in synagogue is sort of the Bible. Uh, for our Jewish sisters and brothers, when they read scripture, uh, they do so, and it's usually the Torah, those first five books of Moses. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, though, we include more pieces. There's the Nevi'im, the prophets, uh, and some of the writings in the historical period around the prophets. And then the Ketuvim, the writings, which is sort of a catch-all, but includes Psalms and Proverbs and the book of Job, things like that. Together, they make up the Hebrew Bible, which is sometimes called the Tanakh, because in Hebrew, there aren't vowels in the sense that there are in English. And so if you have three consonants, Torah, T, Nevi'im, N, which just means prophets, Ketuvim, K, which just means writings, uh, you add a vowel in between and they become the Tanakh. So a lot of different kinds of literature 
in even just the Hebrew Bible. So it gets even more complicated than that uh, as we talk as Episcopalians. As I said before, in Alexandria, the Jewish people who spoke Greek put together a compilation of scriptures in Greek. It was known as the Septuagint. Uh, so the Hebrew Bible doesn't become canonized. It doesn't become brought together in kind of the Israel-Palestine region until the first or second century common era after Jesus. So the Septuagint is the older collection, and, and it's the collection that often is referred to in the New Testament. The New Testament is written entirely in Greek, so it makes sense if they're going to uh, quote the prophet Isaiah, they would use the Greek virgin, version. Uh, but it does do this funny thing among Christians. Episcopalians are part of the Anglican tradition, uh, which along with the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Christians includes a number of books that are in the Septuagint in Greek, but were not included a couple centuries later when the Hebrew Bible came together. And so Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Sirach, 1 and 2 Maccabees, Wisdom, Editions, so additional chapters to Esther, Daniel, and Baruch are in the Episcopalian, the Roman Catholic, and the Orthodox Bible. Those are often called the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanon. They're not in the Lutheran, the Baptist, the Reformation Bibles, because Martin Luther and other scholars at the time noticed that the church had books that his Jewish colleagues didn't have, and so he went and reformed the canon. So Christians can't even agree what counts as scripture or not. It's a little more complicated than that, but it's interesting because it is that complicated, the Hebrew Bible. So a couple more parts. The New Testament is composed of three sort of genres. The Gospels start off the New Testament. Uh, there are four Gospels. Three of them are called synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That is to say they have more or less the same synopsis. They're following the same outline, though details do vary at times among them. And they don't always agree exactly what happened in what order. Uh, Acts is also counted in among the Gospels, really, because Acts is really volume two of the Gospel of Luke. Acts picks up where Luke left off uh, and tells us about the earliest moments of the church after Jesus's resurrection and ascension. And then the last Gospel, John, is the last Gospel that was written. And it's very different than the three synoptics. It's very different. It's, it's almost a mystical text. Uh, and it's content, you can tell. I had a professor in college used to say, by the time you get to John, Jesus almost lights up. Uh, Jesus is so divine, you almost could forget that he's human. John is the one who talks about Jesus as the word of God in the beginning with God. There is this mysticism to John. So those are the Gospels. In the New Testament, there's also the writings of Paul, the letters to the Corinthians, the Romans, all those letters. There's also a set of letters that claim to be by Paul, but scholars tend to tell us that they were probably not written by Paul himself. This was a very common thing at the time of the Bible, that somebody would write a letter or, or write something and then ascribe it to someone else, uh, give it a title or give it a uh, a supposed author that would give it weight, that would mean more people would read it. Uh, it was a way of getting yourself published. 
And so there are some letters in the letters in the New Testament that they consider deuteropauline. They may have been written by somebody who followed Paul, followed Paul's example, and is claiming Paul's name, but it probably wasn't written by Paul. And then there's another catch-all. Uh, there's the other letters. Uh, first and second Peter, one, two, three, John. They don't claim to be by Paul. They're letters to the church. Uh, and then the book of Revelation is in there too, because frankly, very few people know quite what to do with the book of Revelation. So that is the breadth. There's a whole lot in scripture uh, written down over the course of about a thousand years. But as we'll see in just a moment, a lot of the traditions that develop, if you talk about when was scripture put together, you actually have to start a lot earlier. You start in the earliest period of people's beginning to have a sense of who God is and the stories they told around campfires and the hymns they sung. So that's a lot of sort of trivia knowledge, get you ready for a trivia night. But I want to take a moment and look at some specific scripture to show you a little bit about how this approach can take a look at scripture, can have us read the Bible a little bit differently than if we try to look at the Bible as literal history or we try to look at the Bible in a very kind of rigid way. If you allow the tools of history and science to intersect with the way that you read the Bible, some things can open up. So we're going to do a little Bible study. This Bible study is around the crossing of the Red Sea. This is a story that is told multiple times in scripture. I'm going to read just a few of the times that the crossing of the Red Sea, the exodus from Egypt, is interacted with. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we know about the passages I read. It's not exhaustive, but it'll give you an idea. So first from Psalm 77. This is Psalm 77 verses 16 through 20. And this translation, I'm going to give you translations. We have various translations of the Bible. I'm going to give you a couple different translations today. This translation is a particularly Episcopalian translation. The book of Psalms is the only book that we include in our book of common prayer, our book of worship and liturgy, because the Psalms were originally prayers and songs. And so we have our own translation of them. They form the heartbeat of our worship as Episcopalians, as liturgical Christians. And so this is from the Book of Common Prayer. Often, if you're trying to figure out if you have like a, a, a translation that's more of an academic translation or a translation of the Psalms that's more meant for praying or for singing, you can tell because you'll see little asterisks. Those asterisks tell you where the verse splits. So if you were in an ancient cathedral with a center aisle and parts of the choir on either side, the choir might sing half of the verse on the right side of the aisle, and then the other side of the choir will respond antiphonally, we say, on the other side of the choir. So here's Psalm 77 telling about the Exodus. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and tremble. The very depths were shaken. The clouds poured out water, the skies thundered, your arrows flashed to and fro, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind, 
Your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the great waters. Yet your footsteps were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The Psalms are potentially among the oldest scriptures we have, at least in terms of how they got to their final form. Because they were largely poetry, they were music, it's likely that as the oral tradition of scripture developed, these were some of the first that hit their final form. And so you have this very ancient telling of the Exodus, the crossing of the sea, and it makes sense that an ancient telling would come out the way that Psalm 77 does, because we have this understanding from archaeologists and from cultural historians that in the ancient world, water represented chaos. The seas were a very chaotic place. It was a dangerous place. It was a place where you might drown. Floods happened in this region and it would destroy crops and it, people would die. Waters were chaotic. And so one of the themes that pops up again and again in scripture is this idea of the God who conquers the waters, the God who calms the waters, the God who is there in the midst of the storm and who wins the battle over the chaos. And so this telling of leading the people through the chaos of the waters, it has those ancient resonances to it. Let's move on to another telling of the story of the people's escape through the Red or the Reed Sea. This is the most classic one, perhaps. This is the one from the Torah, from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 19 through 24. And this is the common English Bible, the most recent version that has been approved by the Episcopal Church for use in worship. It's the version we use most often at Holy Communion. It is the version translated by the most diverse group of scholars that has ever translated the Bible together. So here are verses 19 through 24, chapter 14 of the book of Exodus. God's messenger, who had been in front of Israel's camp, moved and went behind them. The column of cloud moved from the front and took its place behind them. It stood between Egypt's camp and Israel's camp. The cloud remained there, and when darkness fell, it lit up the night. They didn't come near each other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord pushed the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turning the sea into dry land. The waters were split into two. The Israelites walked into the sea on dry ground. The waters formed a wall for them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians chased them and went into the sea after them. All of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and cavalry. As morning approached, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian camp from the column of lightning and cloud and threw the Egyptian camp into a panic. Of course, the sea comes back and horse and rider, it is said, are thrown into the sea. You'll notice between the psalm and Exodus, there's some very different telling of the same story, which helps us understand that it's very hard to read scripture for history. It's very hard to read scripture as an accurate historical telling of exactly what happened. 
We often talk about this, especially with the book of Genesis, whether or not we believe that that is an accurate historical rendering of the first seven days of creation, or whether we think that those were figuratively seven days or however we approach that. But it's true for human history as well. Psalm 77 and Exodus 14 tell a pretty different account of what happened. They emphasize different things. In Exodus, the role of the Egyptian army and God conquering the army is more important than God stilling the waters. You get a sense of the telling of the story, how the story is told, probably tells you as much about the generation that is telling the story as it does about the generation about whom the story is told. None of these stories were written down as they happened. The Gospels get a little bit closer to that, but still, they're written down 20, 30, even 60 years after the events. So we have to take into account the culture, the setting and life into which they were written. What is it that the scripture is saying? Now, this could be a difficult thing for folks. There's this word deconstruction. There is a little bit of a demythologizing, a disillusionment that can happen when you start to ask questions about scripture like this. Richard Rohr likes to say, disillusioning isn't a bad thing. It just means losing your illusion. I like that idea, losing your illusion. To be honest with you, archaeologists have never been able to find evidence of a group of Israelites enslaved in Egypt and exiting uh, Egypt into Canaan uh, on dry ground through what would have been either the Reed Sea or the Red Sea. Translations differ. There's no historical evidence about this happening outside the Bible. And does that mean it didn't happen? That's a tough question. I prefer to look at it from a different perspective. This story of the Exodus, this story of the escape, it's told so many times in scripture. It's told in so many different ways. It's so important that you have to take a theological look at it. What is this story telling us about the relationship between God and God's people? What is this story that by the time it was written down was already an ancient story? What does it tell us about the relationship between God and God's people? Fundamentally, the story of the Exodus tells us that God is a God who liberates God is a God who sets people free. Something that is true with a capital T about God is that the God of the Exodus, this story is fundamental to who God is for us. This story of the Exodus, the God who sets people free, has been transformative on a personal level in the lives of people who have overcome addiction who have found their way out of abusive relationships, who have found their way into liberation from a pattern of life that was destructive. The story of the Exodus was liberative. And we're here in the midst of February in Black History Month, liberative, critical, crucial to the folks who lived under slavery, the 
African Americans who were enslaved in this country found in the story of Exodus, the story of a bunch of people who were enslaved being freed by God, of course that story resonated. That story has continued to resonate in the Black community up through civil rights up to our own day. At its very foundation, our Bible tells us that God is in the business of hearing the cries of the people and setting them free. So you can say there is truth in scripture. Even if you have questions about the historical accuracy about a verse or a two verse or like, how did this happen? You can look for truth with a capital T, truth about who God is, truth about how God relates to people, truth about how God yearns to set people free, even while you question the historical record. Let's keep the Bible study going a little bit because you may think, Mike, you're stretching here. This is taking it a long way. Well, that's biblical too. St. Paul, this is a letter to the first letter to the Corinthians. St. Paul himself, uh, we think, is the author of this letter. And in the first two verses of chapter 10 of the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this, brothers and sisters, I want you to be sure of the fact that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all went through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, if you think I'm stretching, then Paul is. Paul sees in this story, and the early church really adopts this idea. The story of the Exodus for Paul is a story of rebirth, coming through the waters, being reborn, baptism. Paul says, is what was going on as the people were set free, mapping under the Christian idea of baptism as a new birth into a new way of living with equity, with justice, a new relationship with God and with God's um, creation, a new relationship with our sisters, our brothers, our siblings in Christ. It's not just Paul, though. Uh, in the between 610 and 632 is when Muhammad, the Muslims regard as the prophet Muhammad, uh, wrote the Quran. He tells the story. When two companies saw one another, this is from uh, Quran Surah 26, 61 and forward. When the two companies saw one another, the companions of Moses said, indeed, we are to be overtaken. Moses said, no. Indeed, with me is my Lord. He will guide me. Then we inspired Moses, strike the sea, strike with your staff the sea. And it parted. And each portion was like a great towering mountain. And we saved Moses and those with him altogether. Then we drowned the others. Indeed, in that is a sign, but most of them were not to be believers. Islam takes this story and interprets it as well. Paul talks about baptism. The Quran talks about belief. Islam gives us the idea of the community of believers in a new way. This community of those who put their faith, their belief in the prophet Muhammad and God's work through him, that really defines Islam. And so Islam takes this story to say there were those who were to be believers and those who were to be not believers. It's another interpretation. A lot of what happens with the Bible is really a matter of how we interpret. And frankly, 
As Episcopalians, we think everybody is always in the business of interpreting. Interpretation isn't bad. We all have to know where we are living and read the Bible based on our context. So to wrap up, is the Bible the word of God? That's a charged question. There is this idea of the inerrancy of scripture, of the infallibility of scripture. Sometimes it's called divine writ, this idea that scripture was handed down to us inspired by God. And frankly, the way that that is taught in a lot of evangelical circles is a pretty new thing. Really only the last 150 years or so does a version of that appear. For a lot longer, historically, Christians and Jews haven't held a view like that. There hasn't been this sense that the Bible was a contest with scripture or the Bible was a contest with history or with science. But that is there today in modern Christianity. And frankly, it's more of an Islamic idea. The Quran supposedly was told to Muhammad. Muhammad, the first word of the Quran is recite and God gives Muhammad the exact words God wants. Christians and Jews historically have thought of the Bible as a collection of human writings. So you can think of the Bible as a human document of the divine. You can see this as a human, and it's okay then maybe to see it as sometimes flawed document of what Episcopalians sometimes call God's loving purposes. That's a phrase that we use at lessons and carols at Christmas time, or uh, the record of God's saving deeds in history, how God saved his people in ages past. That is how we'd introduce a whole lot of reading of scripture at the Easter vigil in the Episcopal Church. But it, it gets to that idea of listen for the word among the words, God's saving deed in history. But I want to say one last word about inspiration lest you think that I don't think the Bible is divinely inspired. I would argue that Episcopalians actually take this to a slightly different place. That for those of us who are progressive Christians, it's not to say that we don't believe in the Bible. In some ways, you can claim this progressive view, this view that incorporates history, that incorporates science, and you can say, I don't limit how I view God's inspiration. Inspire means at its root to breathe. Inspire is related to respiration. You can believe that scripture is a living tradition, that it's alive, that the spirit is living and active, and that these books, this collection of scripture continues to inspire. So my last question that I'll leave you with, is the Bible the word of God, is this. Could God, could we believe that in the Bible, could we believe that God continues to inspire us as we read, as we interact with these stories? Could we believe that the work of biblical inspiration isn't over, but that it continues every time people gather together and read scripture. Thanks so much for taking this time with me. I look forward to talking with you if you're in the pilgrimage class. Uh, registration's up at holycommunion.net. Look forward to talking with you in our next discussion session. In a couple weeks, I'll be putting up a video about part two around scripture.
uh, looking at ways we approach scripture as part of our prayer life, as part of our worship, as ways in which we can approach God contemplatively. Again, thanks so much.